Some of you may remember the vice presidential debates between Lloyd Benson and Dan Quayle in 1992. To paraphrase Lloyd Benson, I know Dave Silvernail. Dave Silvernail is a friend of mine. When it comes to sermons, I'm no Dave Silvernail. It's a little bit daunting to preach in a church where the pastor is a veteran of over 700 sermons. But as I began to prepare my sermon for today, I came up with a plan. Here's what I did to try to measure up. I typed out the sermon and then methodically went through it and highlighted all the boring parts. Then I separated all the boring parts from the good parts. Next, just so I wouldn't feel too bad about removing so much of my content, I printed them both out in these two stacks. <laughs> and just like the last judgment with sheep and the goats, I've put all the good parts on the right and the boring parts on the left. Now I think you'll especially appreciate this. The good parts will only take about 15 minutes to buzz through. <clears throat> While the boring parts would have taken over two hours to preach through. <laughs> Finally, lest I be tempted to slip some of the boring parts back in, I've asked Tristan Hasseman to come down, pick up the pile of all the boring parts, and rip them to shreds. Okay, Tristan, are you ready? Okay. This is going to be hard to watch. Okay, Tristan, go. Oh no, not that pile! Oh well. Brace yourselves. We better pray for this sermon. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, jokes and stunts aside, our choices matter. We seek your wisdom today. Make my fallible offering of words your words and speak to our hearts today about biblical wisdom. Change us by your word for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. It was August 24th, 1967. A 22-knot wind from the east-northeast had stirred up uncharacter uncharacteristically large four-foot swells in Gardner's Bay at the eastern end of Long Island Sound. The brilliant triangular yellow and blue sail of the 14-foot sunfish sailboat which had pounded its way three and a half miles across Gardner's Bay, gleamed in the morning sun. As the small boat rounded Cherry Hill Point into the lee of Gardner's Island, the edges of the taut sail flapped frantically and the mast creaked under the strain of the freshening wind. A deeply tanned boy with sun-bleached blonde hair hiked well out to starboard deftly balancing the forces of wind and sail, which threatened capsize moment by moment. 
unfazed by the spindrift and the maritime fray, with steady hand on the tiller, his clear blue eyes locked onto the ruins in the distance. Over his right shoulder was the azure blue water of Bostwick Cove. Off his starboard bow was the wild white churn of waters challenging the shoal, extending a mile and a half out from the northern end of Gardner's Island. And dead ahead, growing closer now, the dark outline of the ruins. The boy, just three months short of his 17th birthday, had nodded with a dismissive, cool confidence at his grandfather's warnings and easily and expertly launched the sunfish that morning directly into the pounding surf. He knew about sailing in extreme conditions. He knew what he was doing. He knew where he was going, the ruins. The ruins was a tiny island, once the site of Gardner's Point Lighthouse, and later the now abandoned Fort Tyler. During the Second World War, Fort Tyler had been used for target practice <clears throat> and reduced to rubble by constant bombing. On his nautical chart, an intriguing 2,000-yard-wide dotted circle labeled Danger surrounded the ruins, warning boaters of the possibility of unexploded ordnance. The yellow-decked sunfish had surely now entered the danger zone, and the lad squinted his eyes, trying to read the warning sign on the shore. A mixture of adventure, excitement, and the barest trace of caution filled the heart of our intrepid teen as he transgressed into Davy Jones' trove of untriggered bombs and torpedoes. The letters on the sign were finally coming into focus, and the wind dropped off into a momentary lull when <laughs> total shock drained the color from my face. My heart pounded, my body shook violently, and the sheet slipped through my fingers, not from an explosion of a long dormant bomb, but from the unimaginable roar of the F-102 jet less than 100 feet above my head that had just buzzed the ruins. Drenched with salt spray without and adrenaline within, I drew a short breath when <laughs> the second F-102 blasted by. The empty sail flapped madly in the wind and my sleek, proud, confident, teenaged body trembled like a puppy's. A 1950s-era jet had taken the wind out of my sails. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Today we begin a sermon series on the book of Proverbs, one of the so-called wisdom books of the Bible. And it is the wisdom of Silvernail that we approach this sermon series topically rather than with our customary walk through the book chapter by chapter. Over the summer, we'll look at how wisdom relates to being good and kind, to discipline, truth, friends, marriage, <clears throat> families, anger, and trust in God. Today, our topic is wisdom and its pursuit. We'll learn about wisdom as taught in the Bible, the inspired, authoritative word of God, without error, as originally written, 
the only infallible rule of faith and practice. Of all I say today, I'd like you to remember one thing. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. My sailing story is meant to illustrate the nature of the fear of the Lord. What kind of fear are we talking about here? Certainly a sliver of my fear was, the, was that a callous <clears throat> or careless Air Force pilot would bomb me into oblivion when I crossed the line. But that was not what shook me to the core. What did rock my world was the instantaneous understanding of the jet's power and my weakness. It was a matter of proper perspective. As we sail through life, we are quick to forget our Creator. We trust our talent, our relationships, our education, our position, our wealth. We confuse the common with the awesome. Our Lord becomes the errand boy who answers our prayer and the benevolent grandpa who over overlooks our bad behavior. We neglect the scriptural accounts of the devastating appearances of God, where prophet Isaiah cried, Woe is me! Proud Paul tumbled to the ground, and brave Roman soldiers became like dead men when God appeared to them. God is truly awesome. Francis Schaeffer coined the term true truth to distinguish distinguish between watered-down relativistic truth and absolute truth. Understanding the difference is important. In that vein, in our sloppy language culture, we need to think of God as awesomely awesome. We need to be shocked by the greatness of our God and overwhelmed by the enormity of our weakness. This perspective is both the starting point and the basic ruling principle of true wisdom, the beginning of wisdom. As we see throughout the Proverbs, wisdom flows out of a proper understanding of our God. The Reformation Study Bible has a great note concerning the fear of the Lord. It points out this fear is not distrustful terror of God, but rather the reverent awe and worshipful response of faith to the God who reveals himself as creator, savior, and judge. God is awesomely awesome. We need to revere him and tremble in his presence. And when we do, wisdom flows naturally. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So with that context, today let's summarize what four passages from the first four chapters of Proverbs teach us about wisdom. King Solomon wrote much of the Proverbs. In chapter 1, he states his purpose in writing. Let's look at verses uh, 1 to 7, which you'll find printed in your bulletin. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. 
Verses one through six, all one Hebrew sentence, outline principles that I think we can all sign up to. Learning is valued in our culture. In America, we choose homes based upon the quality of the schools. We celebrate graduates and give special honor and higher pay to those with advanced degrees. A friend who grew up in Pakistan recently told me that education was so important there that when he made mistakes on his papers, his teachers would hit him. And then when he came home and his parents found out, they'd hit him again. It seems we all mean business when it comes to gaining wisdom, instruction, and understanding. But biblical wisdom goes beyond mere knowledge and beyond even the, the insight mentioned in verse two. Biblical wisdom not only includes knowing how to interact successfully with others, the wise dealing of verse three, but adds the all important ethical element. That is biblical wisdom includes doing what is right and just and fair. Biblical conservatives may oppose abortion, hardcore liberals may condemn the greed of the rich, and atheists may decry the tyranny of blue laws. And all three agree and are outraged at the injustice when someone steals their wallet. People recognize and value true righteousness, justice, and equity. Having been created in the image of God, whether we realize it or not, we long for his righteousness. Solomon addresses this longing in verse three and then teaches us how to put it into practice throughout the rest of the book of Proverbs. As we go on, we see the practice, uh, as we go on, we see that version, uh, verses four through six are all about instruction. Growth in wisdom is a lifelong proposition. Starting out with the young, basic prudence is something that the young and inexperienced need to succeed in life. Similarly, discretion protects the self-indulgent child and the hot-headed youth alike from self-induced harm. But learning doesn't stop at age 21. Verse five teaches that even the wise are to continue to increase in wisdom. Even one of great understanding is supposed to hear and increase in learning. Let's ask ourselves, if we are mature, do we seek to increase in learning? Do we really listen when others offer counsel? Do we seriously consider our friend's advice? Do we reject the criticism of others and ignore the grain of truth, even this flawed assessment of us? God through Solomon tells us to hear and increase in learning. We listen, uh, let's listen and act. What's more, we the wise are advised to go a step further and actually seek out the guidance of others. Solomon says, that's what the understanding do. With all my heart, I love my brothers on the Potomac Hills session. They are great and godly guys, despite being sinners saved by grace, and despite, as Elder James reminds us monthly with what I'll call James Murphy's Law, that the rest of us on this session are just a bunch of schmucks like him. But schmucks or not, the thing I greatly admire about these men is that they actively seek the guidance of the entire session 
as they wrestle with tough issues in their lives. Do you have the privilege and blessing of having a group of godly friends or family members from whom you can seek guidance? Are you willing to come to your deacons or elders or pastors or session when you have a thorny problem or big decision? I offer them freely to you. Let the one who understands obtain guidance. Let me offer one more thought based on verse 6, which talks of understanding proverbs, sayings, and riddles. Life can be chaotic and present us with difficult, fuzzy, confusing, and puzzling situations. Often what we face does not seem to make sense. How do we decide what to do? Sometimes we have little time or opportunity to even seek the counsel of others. In these situations, our best defense is a grounding in the scriptures and a reliance upon prayer and the Spirit of God to lead us. Are you proactive? Do you wrap your mind around the scriptures by reading, them, reading God's word daily? Do you hide his word in your heart, as Psalm 119 uh, teaches? I think that's a clear implication of verse 6. Learn from the scriptures. We are immensely blessed by the infallible, wise, freely available counsel God offers us daily in his word. Proverbs 11:14 teaches us, where there is no guidance, a people falls. But in, abundance, in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. Solomon counsels you to seek the guidance of believers and the guidance of the scriptures. As Casey Stengel said, when you come to a ford in the road, take it. Take either fork. They are both profitable. The counsel of Christians and the counsel of God's word, the Bible. This brings us to verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. It took the shock wave of 17,000 pounds of thrust and 140 decibels of jet engine at 30 paces to knock the cocky out of a teenage know-it-all. I experienced overwhelming power and my remarkable frailty. I was humbled. I was changed. There was no going back. But the encounter at that point in my life was only physical. Experience with an F-102 taught me worldly wisdom. But today, we are faced with a lesson from Solomon about biblical wisdom. All cultures have concepts of wisdom that are similar concerning knowledge, prudent living, training, and even ethics. But biblical wisdom adds to these the spiritual dimension of fear of the Lord, that reverential trust in a loving and all-powerful God a God who loves us while yet sinners and gave his son that we might be made right with him in Christ. Solomon offers a stark choice. On one hand, the fear of the Lord leading to wisdom and life. On the other, despising the Lord and wisdom leading to death. Willfully rejecting the clear evidence of conscience and creation is the mark of a true fool. For a long time, spiritually, I hung between the two, the fear of the Lord and despising the Lord with my actions. 
than an 80-year-old missionary sat down next to me after church and urged me to get off the dime. I had all the facts. I had studied them forever. But God changed my heart at Dr. Fulton's urging. God gave me the gift of an all-too-reasonable faith in Jesus. I had needed to choose wisdom or foolishness, fear of the Lord or despising him, faith in Jesus or faith in the fallible Jed. Are you in limbo between the two? If this is you, you are at a fork in the road. Don't wait anymore. When you come to a fork in the road, take it. Okay, let's assume that you have taken the fear of the, uh, the, the fear of the Lord fork. What's next? If you really fear the Lord, the only logical approach to wisdom is passionate pursuit. What does passionate pursuit of wisdom look like? Solomon tells us in the first five verses of chapter two, my son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. To pursue wisdom with passion, first we have to be willing to receive words of wisdom even if they are hard to take. It's not always easy to receive wise instruction. One time, a visitor was a bit shocked after church when she overheard my wife tell Dave Silvernail that she hated his sermon. What the visitor didn't realize was that this is what Deb tells Dave after all his sermons that especially speak to her heart and convict her of sin. It means that she needs to change something, uh, she needs to change something in her life because of the word of God. Change is uncomfortable, unsettling, just plain hard. And words of wisdom from a parent, pastor, fellow believer are often hard to hear and harder to accept. Passionate pursuit of of wisdom means we receive these words and not only receive them, but as Solomon says, treasure them up within. Let them fill your heart and value them. Revel in them just like Scrooge McDuck revels in his vault of gold coins. Gather God's commandments like a miser gathers money. Pile them up in your heart. They are treasure. But Solomon tells us more in verse 2. We learn passionate pursuit of wisdom also means that we are attentive to and inclined toward wisdom, attuning our minds and hearts to every sniff of wisdom. We're oblivious to the radio waves constantly bombarding us from every direction. But when we tune to 88.5 megahertz at 4 p.m., Our radio's antenna resonates with all things considered on NPR, and suddenly we begin to receive news, human interest stories, and movie reviews. Are you tuned in to words of wisdom? Who do you consider to be wise in the faith? 
Are you attuned to what you can learn from their words and deeds? Are you intentional in tuning in on what godly friends and relatives have to say? Teens, are you wise enough to tune into godly parents rather than tune them out? The wise around you are worthy choices of your attention. Make them your preset stations in life. A surprising thing happened as I was writing the sermon. I finished writing that sentence about making wise people your presets in life and began thinking about verse 3, where Solomon talks about calling out for insight and raising your voice for understanding. At precisely that moment, the phone rang. I was a little annoyed but no one in the house answered the call since my writer's block had finally cleared and I was making progress sermonizing. <clears throat> and then finally, at the last ring, I reluctantly answered the phone. It was my brother-in-law, Tom Mitchell. He told me that he was in the midst of a discussion with his teenage son, Finn, who had been randomly asking his friends to give him a dollar. Tom had told Finn that asking friends for money for no good reason was inappropriate. Finn wasn't buying it, so they called me for a second opinion. The three of us had a great discussion about wisdom in that situation. We all benefited, and God provided me an example of calling out for wisdom for this sermon. So the point is, we can be more than merely attuned to wisdom. We can proactively seek it out. That's what calling out for insight and raising your voice for understanding are all about. We are surrounded by parents, pastors, elders, deacons, and brothers and sisters in Christ. We are also beset with problems, questions, gray areas, life decisions. Solomon would advise us to call out for insight, shout out for understanding. Pick up the phone. Stop someone after church, email, text, raise your hand in Sunday school. Be proactive in seeking out wisdom. Be a Tom Mitchell. Next in verse 4, Solomon tells us to seek wisdom like silver and search for it as, hidden, as for hidden treasure. On the shores of Gardner's Bay, where I had my jet experience, Captain Kidd was reputed to have buried his treasure. As kids, my brother Chuck and I spent countless hours digging up the beach, searching for Captain Kidd's treasure. Our hearts would leap when our trowel struck an old piece of driftwood under the sand. We dug, we dreamed, and we schemed in pursuit of jewels and gold doubloons. Would that we all had that same zeal in searching out wisdom. Are you passionately pursuing godly wisdom? If so, verse 5 says, you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. A good deal. That's a really good deal. This treasure is beyond what our minds can even imagine. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, no eye has seen nor ear heard nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. The treasure is unimaginable, and 
if we pursue it with passion, we will find it. That's what verse 5 says. So with this unimaginably great heavenly treasure in mind, what about the here and now? That's a reasonable question. Chapter 3 gives us insight into the blessings of wisdom in the earthly realm. Let's read verses 13 to 26. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth, and by understanding he established the heavens. By his knowledge the depths broke open, and the clouds dropped down the dew. My son, do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion, and they will be life for your soul and adornment for your neck. Then you will walk on your way securely, and your foot will not stumble. If you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of sudden terror or the ruin of the wicked when it comes, for the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. What an encouraging passage. The fruit of wisdom applied is abundant life, communion with creator and creation, peace, freedom from fear and anxiety, confidence and safety. If you're ever feeling down, please read and reread this passage. This is how life is meant to be. While as Job says, man is born to trouble and his sparks fly upward, nevertheless, wisdom is a means of mitigation against the curse of the fall. The exercise of wisdom always results in blessing. And often, the exercise of wisdom results in blessings that we can see and experience in this life. We have to be careful that we don't treat wisdom as a magic elixir. Be wise and you'll always be rich. Be wise and you'll always live a long life. Be wise and you'll never stumble. But the general principle is that walking in wisdom will naturally lead to greater material blessing, longer and healthier life, and avoidance of the traps of sinful behavior that destroy peace and abundant life. Wisdom is eminently practical and aligned with plain old common sense. Walking in wisdom just naturally leads to blessing in our day-to-day -day life. But there is another, even more important dimension working in the favor of the wise. It is unlike mere worldly Ben Franklin wisdom, such as a penny saved is a penny earned. The added dimension is that the Lord supernaturally blesses those who put the fear of the Lord into practice through wisdom. While prudent living naturally leads to earthly blessing, the Lord superintends the lives of the wise. 
Solomon says this in, in Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. God gives straight paths to the wise. He blesses them and guides their path. He intends good for them. Paul says it in this way in Romans 8. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So God may graciously allow us to live in prosperity and peace, or he may allow us, like Paul, to experience tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. But in either case, in his wisdom, God has mapped out a specific providential plan for our good. He is working all circumstances for our best interests. So Proverbs chapter 3 encourages us with a long list of practical and supernatural blessings of wisdom lived out in our lives. Such things as long life, riches, honor, pleasantness, and peace. He's blessed us with creativity and talent to produce good fruit, mirroring God's wisdom in creation. He provides life for our souls and the adorning beauty of a godly life. And he lays out a secure walk through life for us. Gives us freedom from fear, sleep that is sweet, and immunization from sudden terror or the fear of the deserved ruin of wicked living. The world's inclination is to rail against a God we are commanded to fear. And yet, when we, we do fear him, we have relationship with a gracious king who provides us with pleasantness, sweet dreams, and freedom from fear. Almost paradoxically, possessing fear of the Lord removes fear and anxiety from our lives. Sweet dreams indeed. So let's move on to chapter 4. What do you see here? Listen carefully. I'll read the first five verses. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight. For I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom, get insight, do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. What does this passage say to you? If you were a child or a teen or even a college student living part-time under your parents' roof, I think it's pretty obvious. Be attentive to the godly teaching of your parents. As you grow up, do not forsake it. Hold fast to it. Don't forget it. Sadly, some children forsake, let go, and forget godly wisdom to their great earthly and eternal peril. Very soon, the way of the prodigal becomes not exciting not fun, not glamorous. It becomes empty, dirty, disgusting, nauseating, and hopeless. Don't let that be you. 
There is no other hope but in the gospel. But as a father and now a grandfather, this passage speaks to my heart. Parents, teach your children. This is our job as parents, to teach our children the fear of the Lord, to instruct our children in the commandments of the Lord. I also infer from this passage that I should be graciously insistent that my children pay attention to my instruction in godliness. Note the repetition in this passage. Ten times in five verses, Solomon gives instructions. Furthermore, he points out this teaching is good. We need never doubt that biblical teaching is good. And we should advocate that point with our children. Help them to learn that God's word is, a sweet, and, is sweet and excellent and good. And by the way, parents, is your teaching good? Do you even know what to teach? If not, or if you're not sure, or even if you are sure, Adult Sunday School is the place for you. Don't miss this opportunity to equip yourself to teach your children godly wisdom. Be taught so that your children may be taught by you. And bring them along to Sunday School. If they go to public school or private school, somehow we get them there for 35 hours each week and get them there much earlier than 9.30 each morning. Seems like getting them to Sunday school for one hour, once a week, at 9.30, is a piece of cake. But more than this, God especially calls us as parents to teach them at home. This starts when they are tender. It's never too early. Solomon provides the example from his own life. David taught Solomon when he was the only one in the sight of his mother. His road to wisdom began very early when he was tender. By God's grace and to my immense delight, Matthew and Aaron are already teaching Marius in the faith, even though he's not talking yet, at least not in English or French. So, like Matthew and Aaron, I encourage you to teach your children the faith. Now, what I've said about chapter 4 is mostly by inference. I've inferred by observing what Solomon says, that I should teach my children. But lest there be any doubt on this point, Deuteronomy 6 has a beautiful and instructive passage about teaching our children. This is what Moses says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on your, the doorposts of your house and on your gates. We're commanded to teach our children the Lord's commandments all the time diligently, all the time. When we sit in the house texting, when we walk with them on the way to school in the car, at the end of a long day during those last few minutes of tired receptivity before bed, and even when you rise to start a new day and greet them with the first words out of your mouth. 
Teach them God's commands all the time. Keep Bible verses on the fridge, Christian books on the coffee table, and Bibles everywhere in the home, even the smallest room of the house. Our kids are immersed in a world of sensuality, rebellion, greed, and selfishness in school, in the media, at the mall, on Facebook, and with their friends. May our homes be an oasis of teaching by word and especially by living out wisdom in front of our kids every minute of every day, of every week, of every month, of every year. Love them with wisdom. Tell them, show them. Let there be no mistaking. Fear the Lord in your home and teach your children to do the same. Let the fear of the Lord be contagious in your home. So we've talked about the fear of the Lord and the nature of wisdom in Proverbs chapter 1, passionate pursuit of wisdom in chapter 2, the blessings of wisdom in chapter 3, and passing wisdom on to our children in chapter 4. So how do we apply wisdom in our lives? One easy way to see what wisdom looks like is to read Proverbs from start to finish. There are 31 chapters. Why not read a chapter each day of the month? Then pick a verse each day and do try this verse at home. <clears throat> and since we're talking about wisdom literature in the Bible, the book of James is often thought of as wisdom literature in the New Testament. Jesus' brother, James, had the best example of human wisdom ever observed. Life with his older brother, Jesus. What better source could there be for a description of the marks of wisdom? Let's see what J Jesus' brother has to say in James 3, 17 and 18. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. James starts with purity. Wisdom that is a gift from God reflects the purity of God himself. Purity stands out as beautiful and unique. Ask God for wisdom from above that is pure. It bears sweet and juicy fruit that draws others to Christ, gives credence to the claims of the gospel, and glorifies the Father. The other marks of wisdom are ingredients for peace. When we are peaceable, gentle, open to reason, and full of mercy, we de-escalate fights, soothe the threatened, encourage dialogue instead of conflict, and forgive and return blessing for evil. Take a moment. Think of a common conflict you experience with someone. How can you be peaceable, gentle, open to reason, and full of mercy in this situation? Through the meekness of wisdom, you have the power to make peace. In closing, the way of wisdom is not always easy. Jesus faced two paths. 
One led to short-term ease, pleasure, and the acclaim of the world. One led to Jerusalem and suffering, pain, humiliation, death on the cross, and, cur and the curse of his beloved father. Luke 9 describes the choice Jesus made. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus chose wisdom. He set his face like flint toward Jerusalem. Proverbs 17.24 gives us a choice. The discerning sets his face toward wisdom, but the eyes of a fool are on the ends of the earth. Which path to take? We can keep our eyes on the ends of the earth, leading to foolishness and death, or we can choose the narrow road leading to Jerusalem, the choice of fearing God and following the path of wisdom. We can also avoid choosing, but no choice leaves us on the road to death. So no choice is a choice for death. Our innocent, proactive, loving, and beloved Lord Jesus suffered so that we might be reconciled to our awesomely awesome, fearful, loving, and gracious God through faith. The Bible teaches that this faith in Jesus' righteousness and not anything we do is the only way to God. I pray that God has granted you the faith to choose Jesus and wisdom. The fear of God or the fear of man? Wisdom or foolishness? Death or life? There is no in-between. When you come to a fork in the road, take it. In the meekness of wisdom, I ask you to take a moment now to pray that God may grant you the fear of the Lord and wisdom. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Whom we fear and love, grant each of us here today the wisdom to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Grant us the wisdom to love our neighbors as ourselves. May we make choices in the meekness of wisdom each day of our lives, and may you be glorified. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.